Good morning. All right. Who's excited that we're starting a new book today? Yeah, okay. Mix. Some of you were super excited. Some of you were indifferent. But hopefully by the end, you'll be excited no matter what you are uh, because this is going to be very good. So open to 2 Corinthians. Now, maybe people looked at the outline today and saw we were covering two verses. And we have a whole page of notes. So sometimes I get a little carried away. I apologize. Uh, I get excited. So, 2 Corinthians, we're going to study the greeting this morning, and uh, hopefully you'll find that as invigorating as uh, I do, but uh, go ahead and open to 2 Corinthians. Uh, We'll start right in the text, and then we're going to have to step back and do a lot of context, a lot of history this morning as we put all this together, and really what's happening is we're going to give a survey of the entire book today, so you'll kind of have a foretaste, a forecast of what's coming forward, the specific questions that Paul is addressing, what's going on in his life, and we'll get a lot more in detail, in depth as we go along looking at this, but we're going to dive right in. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that might not be that you know, revolutionary to you, to just read those verses, this opening, but if you know the context of what's going on in 2 Corinthians, we'll start to put some of these pieces together. Paul is choosing some of these words very particularly. So let's just start with the very first word, which is Paul. Okay, we have to know who he is and what's going on or we'll not be able to make sense of this. So grab your, your um, well, you already have your Bible, hopefully. Flip back to Acts. I want you to see a bit of the narrative, see how this is working out. And if you want to turn with me to Acts 20, um, verse 1, I want to show you where 2 Corinthians is written. So Acts chapter 20, verse 1. So just a little bit of prehistory before we get to this point. Remember, the Apostle Paul used to be known by another name more regularly. And what name was that? Saul. He was Saul the Pharisee. He was Saul the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Jew of Jews, the righteous of the righteous, the one who, even after getting saved, if you wanted to have a righteousness contest, he would still say he wins. He was that righteous. He never disobeyed his conscience. Can you imagine this guy? All right, that's the Apostle Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, But he's on his way to persecute some Christians. He wants to go to Damascus, go up there to find these Christians, round them up. He wants to be like that Old Testament character who took the spear and stabbed the ungodly people before the Lord, murdering them in their sin to prove that he was a righteous individual. That's his worldview. That's his belief system. He wants to see these Christians killed. But on the way to Damascus, you you know this part of the story, he sees this blinding light. And that blinding light speaks to him. And who is it that he has an encounter with? Jesus specifically. Jesus in the flesh. The resurrected, risen Lord himself calls out Paul for a purpose. For his whole life, he will be the minister to the Gentiles. And that happens on the road to Damascus. Paul quickly becomes a believer, starts preaching the gospel. Of course, many don't trust him. It takes a while. Barnabas has to bring him into the fold saying, guys, this is a legit conversion, you should trust this guy. As time goes by, Paul is 
ministering and preaching. Then he gets to do a seminary, a three-year seminary stint in the desert with Jesus in the flesh. That's an amazing scenario. He's going to become an apostle. Well, the apostles before had spent their time on earth with Jesus in the flesh, leading up to his crucifixion and ultimate resurrection, and then 40 days of intense training before Jesus ascended to heaven. Paul got a one-on-one, three-year seminary education with Jesus himself, and of course becomes a missionary. Now, he's still called Saul at this point in his life, and he goes to a church in Antioch, and they have a meeting, and the Holy Spirit tells them to set aside Barnabas and Saul for a mission work. And so they go out together very quickly on this mission work. Barnabas gets in a scenario where he's not quite sure what to do. So Paul steps in and he offers this curse of blindness over an adversary. He gets blind immediately when this happens. The proconsul believes, large conversion scenario. And from that point forward, with Paul at the helm, he becomes the apostle Paul rather than Saul. So it's not, just to give you background, it's not his conversion that changes his name. It's his leadership of the Gentile mission. So rather than being Saul the Hebrew, he uses his Greek name, Paul the Apostle. And now he's doing missionary work. That's what we call the first missionary journey. Runs through what's currently Turkey. Back then we called it Asia Minor. This would be Galatia, Ephesus, Troas, these different places you've You've read about in your New Testament. Paul does this mission, then he comes back to Antioch, then he goes on another mission and receives what's called the Macedonian call. So he takes the gospel into what we would call Europe, to Macedonia, ultimately to Greece, and he plants a church that will play a significant role in the advancement of the gospel um, for the rest of early church history, and that church was planted in Corinth which we read, if you wanted to read that, that's in Acts 18, very significant chapter. Um, Paul does a lot of ministry in a lot of places, but for some reason Corinth gets a lot of attention in the book of Acts. Paul does a very significant ministry there. He plants that church with Priscilla and Aquila. We've studied 1 Corinthians, and we noted, if we're backing up like five years, so I know you might not remember all of the details in that scenario, but his work with Priscilla and Aquila as a tent maker was part of his defense because the whole time he was in Corinth, he never took a salary from the church. He could have, but he chose not to. He wanted to do this mission work free, make the gospel free. He makes an argument in 2 Corinthians that he could have been completely in his rights to take an income there, but because in Corinth there was a special role, a common um, job opportunity was to be a public speaker and make money off of folks, He didn't want to be put in that camp, so he did his work as a tent maker while he was there. Of course, that sets up a whole scenario with controversy, but we'll get to that later. So Paul eventually leaves Corinth after he's planted this church, and then a very famous individual um, goes to Corinth and starts preaching the gospel there. His name was Apollos. Have you ever heard of this guy? Apollos is one of those guys we don't know a lot about scripturally. Um, We get a few small snippets, but... The Holy Spirit-inspired Bible says that Apollos was competent in the Scriptures. Now, just imagine if the Holy Spirit says you're competent in the Scriptures, how competent do you think you are in the Scriptures? This is a very smart guy. So Paul planted the church. Then Apollos went 
and did work there. And then after Apollos left, Cephas came and did work in Corinth. Now, who is Cephas? This is the apostle Peter. So they had Paul, they had Apollos, and then Peter. All of these guys come and do ministry in this church. Now, do you think that would make the church really strong? You would hope so. But it didn't. Because now you have a church that's had three super personalities come through it, and then you'll have people in the church identify with each of those three super personalities. So Paul dealt with that in his first letter to the Corinthians. Some of you say, I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow, some of them even said, I follow Jesus. And which theme was right? Paul says all of them are wrong. Even the ones saying they follow Jesus because they weren't unified in the body. And so this constant problem going on in Corinth, we'll come back to that. Paul goes off, he's doing more mission work. He hears about these problems that are happening in Corinth. So he writes them a letter, and then about the same time, they send him a letter asking him a bunch of theological questions, and then he responds again. So we're at our second letter now. That second letter Paul writes to this church is called, this is what's confusing, so y'all just bear with it. So Paul's second letter is called 1 Corinthians. Everybody with me? So second letter to Corinth, the first letter he's getting on to him from unity and from sexual sin, we'll get into that in a minute, but he gets on to him, then they write him a letter, then he writes a big letter back, still getting on to them for all of those things and answering a bunch of questions. So if you remember the First Corinthians study or if you've read First Corinthians, you may remember Paul will make this statement over and over and over again, now concerning this topic, and he'll talk about that topic, now concerning that topic. And that's because all of these are responses to questions they had asked him. Now, Paul gets pretty confrontational at a few points in the letter. He gets on to them for how they do the Lord's Supper. He gets on to them for how they do um, uh, how they do spiritual gifts. He gets on to them for how they're doing or not doing church discipline. He gets on to them for the, the vision. It's like you read through the letter, and it's like every single time he's got something negative to say about this church. Now, have you ever had someone sit down and critique you? <laughs> All the time, wow. That's probably honest, you know. How do you feel when someone makes a list and says, here's everything you're doing wrong? Right, nobody's answering, but you know what I'm talking about, right? You have a tendency to get a little defensive. So imagine you've got a church who... I mean, Paul had planted, but then Apollos comes through, and then Cephas comes through, and then Paul writes this letter, and it's really negative, and it says a lot of harsh things, gives them a lot of very direct, he, he gets kind of apostolic on them a few times in that letter, and then to top it all off, a group of false apostles show up and start complaining about Paul. And so Paul um, gets... Take that negative atmosphere, and then new apostles apostles come in, start complaining about Paul. What do you think the church is going to do now? They're going to start hating this guy, that Paul. They start developing an attitude towards Paul. Well, Timothy goes to check things out at Corinth, and then he comes back to Paul and says, Paul, dude, it's, it's worse than you can imagine at the church at Corinth. This is after 1 Corinthians. So Paul makes another trip. Luke leaves that out of his narrative in Acts, but Paul tells us about it. 
So Paul makes another trip to Corinth, and he gets to Corinth, and the church publicly and openly severs ties with Paul, saying, Paul, we want nothing to do with you. You're, you're a fake apostle. We're going to go with the other guys. You're this puny little apostle. We don't like you anymore. Have you ever been rejected by religious people that you thought loved you, that you thought cared for you? That's how Paul felt after this. So Paul didn't even hang around and fight. In a complete humble, humiliated state, he withdraws, walks away, goes back to Ephesus, where things in Ephesus are worse, seemingly, than they even are in Corinth, because he gets back, he's preaching the gospel, causes a riot, mass persecution breaks out, and that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 20. So after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. So here, see Paul's emotional position here. A church he planted has rejected him, and he's had to come away with his tail between his legs back to Ephesus. At Ephesus, there's so much persecution that he has to actually leave the town, and he heads over to Macedonia. So when he gets there, he said, we had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, and then he came to Greece. Well, what is the capital city in the province of Greece? Anybody want to take a guess? Corinth. So, of everything going down with 2 Corinthians happens during the first verse of Acts chapter 2. So, while Paul is in Macedonia, he sends Titus with a very severe letter. I mean, he's probably angry. He's a little anxious that maybe it was too severe, that maybe he said too much little too harsh in this letter, but he sends this letter with Titus to Corinth. And this whole time, he's just waiting to find out what their response is going to be. He feels depression. He feels anxiety. He feels oppression. He feels spiritual warfare. He's trying to do this ministry, but he can't focus on it because he's so upset about what's happening in Corinth. And then finally, Titus shows back up in Macedonia and says, Paul, I've got good news. The church that kicked you out, the church that hated you, the church that called you names, the church that sent you packing has repented and they have welcomed you back. They've turned from their sin and they reach out their hands and both forgiveness and apology, saying, Paul, come back. That's the context for 2 Corinthians. So he's dealing with the fact that they've had a really harsh relationship. He's been suffering. He's been persecuted. He's reached what he'll call later in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, the moment of he felt like he was given the sentence of death. He was going to die under the weight of this burden. And now he's received this joyous message that they finally repented. And so he writes first or 2 Corinthians, which is his fourth letter to the church. So how many of his letters do we have? We only have two. We have his second letter and his fourth letter. We don't have his first and third letter. If that's confusing, I'm sorry. We have first and second Corinthians, which we could call second and fourth Corinthians. Does that make sense? You're with me on that? All right, that's the context. That's what Paul is doing. 
in this letter, he's writing after they have repented, after they have had some level of restoration. And then furthermore, I want you to see before we go back to 1 Corinthians and Acts verse 23, he says, um, there he spent three months, and so he's spending three months in Corinth, and says, and then when a plot was made against them by the Jews, um, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia, and so Peter, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. All of these people were with him. What's beautiful about this story is this church that absolutely rejected Paul becomes the meeting point for all of these different missions to launch out, to take this offering to Jerusalem. And we'll cover the offering later in um, Corinthians as we go. And that is the point where Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome from Corinth after all of this controversy and restoration. What do we call the church written to Rome? I mean, the letter to the church in Rome. Romans. And if you've read Romans, you know, this is, in a lot of ways, considered Paul's masterpiece letter. His beautiful system of theology all put together while he's sitting in the very church where he'd experienced the most severe of all rejection. So both Paul's letter and this redemptive story that Paul wrote the letter within are going to be the model for how Paul is going to address every scenario, every situation going on in the church at Corinth. So I'll go back to 2 Corinthians now. 2 Corinthians. Here's what we're going to do from this point forward. I want us to overview the problem and how Paul's going to deal with it and then make application as a general letter for what it will do for us today. So the problems at Corinth. Number one, the Corinthian church constantly fell into division all the time. You ever been in a church? Well, you're in one right now. Have you ever been in a church that had division? If you answered yes to the first question, you have to answer yes to the second question because there's people in churches. That's what's wrong with churches. Did you know that? You always think there's something wrong with the church. There's people there. That means there's sin there. That means there ought to be repentance there. So Paul is dealing with division regularly, but Corinth had a very good knack for getting themselves divided. And so even in 2 Corinthians, he's still going to be dealing with this division. Now they've got a new division rising in the church because they've got the people who led the resistance against Paul and then they've got the people who stayed faithful to Paul when they were the outcast. And so now they're going to be divided. And where we think Paul would say, well, those people who were against me, just be done with them. Instead, Paul's going to get on to them for being too harsh with the people who rejected him. So the unity of the gospel is going to be put on display as it goes forward. So also he's dealing with false apostles who preach the false gospel. And so, by and large, in Paul's ministry, false gospel almost always entailed an addition to the gospel. Yeah, believe in Jesus, believe in the cross, believe in the resurrection, but you also have to get circumcised. You also have to follow the Old Testament laws. You also, anything you add, Paul would say this is a false gospel. And so he's going to show us, Later on in the letter, a contrast, and we'll talk about this more clearly in a minute, between the Old and New Testament and why we do not need those pieces in order to be saved. 
So third, the problem is the authority of Paul was called into question. Now, I mentioned this last week. One of the best arguments Paul's opponents had was that everywhere Paul went, things went poorly. Doesn't matter. He got on a boat, it would wreck. If he went to a town with Romans, he would end up in prison. If he went to a town with Jews, they would beat him. No matter what Paul did, it seems like everything he touches broke in some way. No matter what he did, he faced persecution, he faced um, suffering, trial, sorrow, backstabbing. Everywhere he goes, something goes wrong. And they use this to call into question whether or not Paul was truly a servant of God. Now, we share that paradigm a lot. Well, if God was in it, you know, the doors would just be open and the way would be easy. But that's not how Paul is going to set up this argument at all. Instead, he's going to connect suffering to God's mission. And then the fourth problem that uh, their church could not seem to walk away from was the church had many who openly indulged in sexual immorality. So if you wanted to describe the culture of Corinth, it was very Greek. And the same way that we can use that negatively to refer to your college experience, we could use that same expression to refer to their culture. It was very Greek in every sense of the term, and they had an issue of how much of that Greek culture they could deal with and still be Christian. How much of it can we keep and still be Christian? And Paul is always pushing back and saying, no, you cannot be like this. No, no, no. That's why large sections of 1 Corinthians deal with this, and we'll see it come up in a different way, but still come up in 2 Corinthians as we go. So how does Paul answer these overlapping questions? The vision, false prophets, his own authority, and sexual morality. He's going to take a very straightforward approach, and he's just going to explain what it means to say we live under the new covenant. We are ministers of the new covenant, Paul would say. So here's his basic argument. First point under the heart of Paul's letter. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant precisely because it changes people from the inside. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant because it changes people from the inside. So I want you to see, just turn to chapter 3, verse 7. See some of this coming together. So Paul says, now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face. Now Moses gave them what covenant? The old covenant. All right, And what does he call it? It's the ministry of what? The old covenant, he would say, is the ministry of death, carved in stone. But it came with the glory, so much glory, that Moses... After he saw God, what was Moses' face doing? It was literally glowing. They could look at Moses and see the radiation coming from the glory of God. But it was being brought to an end. Now jump down to verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. So what's he say? Ministry of death, ministry of condemnation. Instead, though, we have the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. There's a big system of theology at play here. Were they supposed to be righteous in the Old Testament? Absolutely they were. That's what the law is for. They were commanded 
to live rightly. They had a very clear system of if you obey, God blesses. If you disobey, God curses. And we see throughout the Old Testament system, God is regularly cursing his people because they were in sin. They were in rebellion. And the Apostle Paul is saying the Old Testament only provided the reason for their condemnation. It showed them their sin. It showed them their need for something greater. There's no true salvation in the system of the Old Testament. Salvation is and always has been by grace and grace alone. But righteousness is possible not when it's the basis of our salvation, but rather when it's the consequence of our salvation. Do you understand the difference? You cannot be righteous if righteousness is how you get saved. But you can be righteous if you get saved. That's the basic argument Paul is going to make. Therefore, if you're part of the new covenant, will you do good works? Absolutely. There's no such thing as a member of the new covenant who isn't transformed. Because the new covenant is superior precisely because people change from the inside. You give people a list of rules to obey, they turn into Pharisees. But if you give people the gospel, they become new people. Next, the new covenant proclaims the power of God through weakness. That's what we looked at last week when we looked at chapter 4, verse 7, that we are all jars of clay, and those jars have to be broken to display the glory of God. We'll see suffering and weakness come up constantly in this letter. This is part of the plan, because we live in an age where we both embody the cross and the resurrection at the same time. So there will be suffering, but we will not be destroyed. There will be pain, but there will be glory, both happening at the same time. So weakness amplifies the glory of God. Then number three under that section, Paul is a God-ordained minister of the new covenant. Now that may not seem that significant to you, but in our current culture, and it's happened throughout church history, but it's happening right now again, there's a tendency for people to want to emphasize the Gospels instead of the letters to Paul. Now think about it. What's more important, the Gospels or the letters to Paul? (laughs) Both. Well, let's think about it another way. You've heard of red letters, right? I think David Crowder even has a song about red letters. I I love the song, and I love what he's getting at, but it it does reinforce a false false doctrine. And... uh, why are the red letters so important? You know what red letters are. So if you open a Bible and it has red letters, why are those letters red? Because Jesus spoke those letters. And so that reinforces this belief that those letters are more from God than the black letters are. Well, is that true? No, it's not true at all. The red letters and the black letters are equal. They're exactly the same because How much scripture did God inspire? What's what's the word? All scripture is God inspired. So if you elevate the red letters above the black letters, or if you elevate Paul, or sorry, you elevate um, Jesus above Paul in terms of the content of scripture, you're reinforcing a false dichotomy, a false contradiction. There's no contest between Paul and Jesus. Paul himself says, He is a messenger of the Lord, and he even has the authority of the Lord to speak on the Lord's behalf. And Jesus 
didn't write anything down. So none of the Gospels are any more the direct words of Christ than anything Paul wrote is. They're all equally the same. And so there's a movement in Christianity today to want to just go to the, let's go to the loving message of Jesus and let's forget this doctrine that Paul talked about. But where did Paul get this doctrine from? He spent three years with Jesus, receiving. He is a God-ordained minister of this new covenant. Therefore, to trust Paul is to trust the gospel. We don't get to choose which parts of God's scripture we get to obey. How much of the scripture must we obey? Every single piece. That'll be argued quite extensively later on in Paul's gospel. So let's think about how 1 Corinthians is going to apply to us in our culture. Number one, the gospel is about what we are more than just what we believe. Now Christianity is certainly no less than a system of belief, but it is a lot more than a system of belief. You can't remove the system of belief, but it is possible to only have the system of belief and not truly be converted. And this is going to be a major theme throughout Paul's gospel, that this word is doing a transforming work in us so that we become different people. The gospel is about what we are more than just what we believe. And then third, the go- or second, the gospel doesn't just inform our decisions, it's a thorough remaking of our entire person. So you know this verse, 517, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're not just acting differently. This is where that concept of repentance needs to be properly defined because repentance doesn't just mean you are going one direction and then you make a 180 and go a different direction. It's an absolute change of ideology. It's a change of allegiance. It's a change of teams. It's a change of worldview. Everything about you has to be submitted to the gospel of Christ. That's why the lingo is new creation, a complete do-over. You've got to be a different person through the work of the gospel. And in number three, and this is beautiful in this work in Paul's life, in the work of Corinthians. The gospel places us inside a grand story of redemption, giving meaning and direction to every aspect of our lives. So Paul's going to spend a lot of time talking about an offering. He's collecting an offering among the churches in Greece, in Macedonia, even in Asia Minor, so that he can take that offering to Jerusalem Because the church experiencing the most persecution in the entire Roman Empire is the church at Rome. They're suffering. And Paul wants to connect the church at Corinth to the big story of what God is doing across the globe. Because the glory of the gospel is a lot more beautiful than just I get saved, my sins get forgiven. But rather, I get to be part of a story that God has been unfolding since before the foundations of the world. I love the way Paul talks about it in Ephesians, that there was a secret mystery hidden for ages in God, but now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being put on display. We, the redeemed people of God, are the chief primary way God is demonstrating his wisdom, 
His plan, His power, His glory over all creation is what God is doing in and through us by the power of the gospel. So guys, the message of First Corinthians, sorry, of Second Corinthians is perfectly applicable to what we do in life today. Even though this is Paul's most personal letter, it's going to become a personal gospel for us. So let's plug in to God's grand story of redemption. 